0: Gracious Father, um, I, I pray in this moment uh, before we look at your word, I pray for um, a sense of, of humility and openness of heart. Oftentimes, Lord, our, our own assessment of our own heart is is wrong. Uh, we think we're one place when in fact we're another place. And we need you and your spirit through the truth to open our eyes to see what's really going on with our, our souls, what's going on with our spirits, um, to get a correct sense of, of, of what's happening um, inside of us. Some of us may be hard of heart and don't even know it. Others may be cynical and not even know it. And so I, I just ask as we begin that you would um, uncover and you would um, pull back um, whatever's blinding us from seeing what you see, and we, we pray this, Lord, for the purpose that we might see you more clearly and that our relationship with you would be uh, full of joy, and if there's been a loss of joy and a loss of, of, of affection for you, that it, this would begin the process of rekindling. So, uh, Father, we, we pray um, that you would do this. This is a work that only you, working in your grace through your spirit, through the truth, can do. So we give you this time. And I just beg, Father, work in Christ's name. Amen. There's this um, author and lecturer, um, professor actually, who wrote a book called uh, The Fifth Discipline. And he's, uh, not that I'm commending this book to any of you, but um, it's a book that talks about um, organizational growth and learning within organizations and so forth. And, and one of the things that he argues in this book um, is that one of the um, the hindrances to a, a group or an organization, let's just call it a group, uh, or you could call it a family. Growing is this thing called cynicism. That it, it, it actually impedes or hinders a, 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 an organization from learning and growing. And I think that could be said, the same thing could be said for, for a family. That, that where there's cynicism in a family, well there's a hindrance to growth and, and learning and where there's cynicism in your own heart, then there is, a, um, there is a hindrance to growth and learning. And cynicism by very nature is distrust. It's a disposition of, of distrust. And in this book, uh, he writes this, or gives this description of cynicism that I found to be um, enlightening. He wrote this, he said, scratch the surface of most cynics and you find a frustrated idealist. <laughs> That's great. Someone who, in this last part, is, is key. Someone who made the mistake of converting his ideals into expectations. That underneath the surface of most cynics is an idealist that's just frustrated. And part of that frustration is because, and I think it's a truthful statement, they have converted their ideals into expectations that they can be accomplished or experienced or, or fulfilled. Now, I think most of us start off life, or at least adulthood, as idealists. I said most of us. There are probably a few Eeyores out there, although technically I suppose Eeyore is a pessimist, not not a cynic. Um, But most of us start off as as idealists, and and being an idealist isn't a bad thing. In fact... um, As long as those ideals line up with Scripture. I mean, when Jesus says, Be perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. He's setting before us a perfect ideal. I mean, Jesus is the sum of of what is ideal, right? God is conforming us into the image of that which is ideal, that which is perfect, that which is beautiful, that which is full of glory. That is Christ. And we should want to be like Christ. And that that is an ideal. And it's good to have uh, those ideals insofar as they line up with Scripture. Um, But to think, or to convert. That ideal, I'm going to be more Christ-like, into the expectation that you're going to arrive any time in this life is false. And you'll find yourself, if you have converted that ideal into an expectation, you'll find yourself struggling with cynicism and distrust. As I said, most of us as, as young adults end up um, starting life in, in, uh, as idealists. Uh, expectations young married couple or young couple at the altar really excited to get married and say i do and they whether they know it or not they have this implicit dream inside of 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 maybe not perfection but pretty close to it I, i've counseled a lot of couples and after they get married they come back and say you were right right <laughs> Because they feel like once you cross the line of of being married, then they're going to experience that magical you complete me. And then when the honeymoon is over and they get back and hit real life, things start to settle in. They realize it's not that you complete me, but actually you kind of irritate me. (laughs) It's true. And find that, that expectation somewhat crushed. And then... If it continues, if, if, and I'm just speaking plainly here, if, if, if marriage really is hard work and difficult and painful and it's, it's prolonged, you know, after 5, six, seven, 10 years of that, 20 years, pretty soon you can be jaded about marriage. So much so that when you go to a wedding, you sit there going, poor sap. <laughs> Doesn't have a clue what he's getting himself into, right? Or you just roll your eyes. Like, like you kind of feel like it's a joke. I mean, that, that, that's a sign that your heart's gone cynical about marriage, right? Or uh, uh, we talk about parenting a lot too, right? Same thing. Uh, inside each young parent's heart, I should say most young parents' heart, is this unconscious belief, expectation. Like intellectually, you know, as a Christian, my, my child, no matter how cute and cuddly, how good they smell, is a raging sinner, right? You know that. And I'll tell you this firsthand. But there's this expectation that somehow my little child is going to be the exception to the rule and just be mildly sinful. And then if you have a difficult and painful time and it's prolonged over a period, well then it's really easy to become jaded, cynical about Raising kids, so much so that when you see the little baby in somebody else's arms, you're thinking, just wait. <laughs> or Sap doesn't have a clue what he or she, they, are in for. And before you know it, you find yourself in a position where you're really jaded, right? And, um, and that, that's true of really anything. When we experience um, disappointment or unfulfilled expectations of our idealism, our, our ideals, um, our careers, um, teaching, church, marriage, parenting, God himself. And you know, it's, 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 it's fairly common knowledge that the generation that we live in is enormously cynic, cynical. Uh, we live in a, a time of great cynicism, cynicism about politics, cynicism about government. And at, at some level, you can understand it, right? Cynicism about um, marriage, cynicism about raising children, cynicism about church. And you know, our, what, what I love about our father, what I love about our shepherd, is that he knows us, and he knows where we're at. He knows that his people at times are going to be jaded, and they're going to be cynical about life, and, and he, he gives us graciously and mercifully pathways or truths or chapters in the Bible that address just that issue, like Psalm seventy-three. Uh, Psalm seventy-three is the a, is a story of a, of, a, of a man who grew cynical, uh, of a man who became jaded by life. And it's interesting, right? That, I mean, the Bible is just so wise and so, so brilliant that it, it that it, God, it knew where we'd struggle, and that in a loving and gracious way, He sent us a truth to help us find our way out if we find ourselves jaded by life. And I. Venture to say that there's some here who are jaded. You just some of you know it. Others of you maybe feel mildly jaded, and you don't know it. Well, just perhaps, just perhaps, the Lord is going to be gracious to you through the truth of Scripture and lead you out, because there's no joy in a jaded heart. Um, And I I think that's the reason He gave us uh, Psalm 73 one of of the the, the chapters in the Bible that addresses this this very issue. And uh, it is is a marvelous story. We're just going to look at the first three verses, which are kind of dark, but um, I I intend on bringing it back to the light. Um, But it's a story of of a man's fragile heart. It's a a story of, of, uh, of a jaded heart finding joy again. It's a story of... Of redemption. It's a story of the faithfulness and the grace and the gentleness and the tenderness of, of God. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story of a man who rediscovers the beauty and the supremacy of all that God is. So that by, t- by the time you get to the end, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? A complete turnaround of the heart. So I want to encourage you. This is one of those Psalms that I think has the potential of freeing hearts, of maybe leading the way out into the light. The first three verses are his, um, the psalmist's, uh, if you will, description of the process by which he became jaded, and and we're just going to focus on those three verses. And um, before we uh, focus on the several parts that I want to focus on, let me just let me just read how he opens up his reflective mini autobiography. This is what he writes. A psalm of Asaph, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's confessing for us, to help us, the process of his heart becoming envious or jaded, and I think underneath it all, um, cynical. And even these three verses helps us understand a little bit of our own hearts and, and what can happen to our own hearts, And which is why I wanted to pause on these three verses. Consider the man first, that is the writer, the author, Asaph. He wasn't an ordinary Joe when it comes to faith. Um, he's described elsewhere, in the, well, first of all, we know he writes Psalms. He's, he's written another number of psalms. He's, he, he's, so he, he writes worship. He was a, a poet. He is a, um, also described in First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 5, as the chief ministers before the ark of the Lord. That is a, that is a, a coveted, um, privileged position to be the chief minister before the ark of the covenant, before the ark of the Lord. Um, He's called in First Chronicles 29, I believe, uh, he's called a seer or a prophet. That his, um, he has been given the gift to be able to, to speak forth and write forth God's word. So he, he experienced firsthand what it's like to have the Spirit of the living God move upon you in such a way that what you write actually becomes scripture. So you have, in terms of who, who this guy is, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a giant, he's a spir- spiritual superstar. I mean, if there's any position closer to the presence of Yahweh, I don't know what it is other than this guy, who's the chief of the ministers before the very ark of the Lord. So he's in close. He's intimate. He is, no doubt, biblically saturated in the Bible of his day, and he was theologically advanced, right? That's who this guy is. That's, that's the writer. That's the author. That's, that's his identity. That's who he is. Spiritual giant. And yet he's the one who says, as for me, spiritual giant, used of the Lord, moved upon by the Holy Spirit, in one of the closest positions to Yahweh himself, says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. I got got so close to crossing over that line of faithlessness and despair. My steps had nearly slipped so high, so low. Such a transformation from the joy of Yahweh worship to the jaded heart that's now envious. And that, that, that's instructive. It's significant. Because what it tells us is that, you know, it doesn't make a difference how many, time, how many years you've been in the faith. Sometimes that, that, that's more of a, a danger than, a, than a, or a liability than an asset. It doesn't matter how much theology you know, how biblical you are, how many times you've experienced the spirit of the living God move in your life. The fact of the matter is you are, all of us are susceptible to to an infection, an infection of of cynicism. And cynicism, its roots are sinful. As I said, it's a disposition of distrust. And that's not bad when we're talking about human institutions per se, but when it comes to our relationship with God and how he works in the world, well, then then it's a problem if he was susceptible, this great prophet, writer, author, poet, musician, then every one of us is too. It doesn't matter if you're a bishop or a pastor or an elder or just, just, just a Christian, which is the most important thing to be at the end of the day anyway. Every one of us are susceptible to this. Um, that, that's part of what I think we're supposed to see. This is Asaph talking here. Really? You fell. You struggled. You wandered. Yes. Any and everyone's heart in here is susceptible. Any and everyone's heart in here is vulnerable. Everyone and anyone's heart in here is fragile and capable of being seduced and misled. That's, that's part of what we learn. The process recognize your heart is, is much weaker than you think it is. And it's not... Based upon how much you know, how long you've been in ministry, or whatever it is. You know, it's interesting. This heart thing that we, the Bible talks about is, it's not talking about our emotions uh, when the Bible talks about our heart. It's talking about the center and the seat of who we are as beings. That is that immaterial part that's, that makes up our being. It's a soul, it's a spirit, and I think those two things are the same. Um, and I don't, and it's a mysterious and deep, Thing. Um, Jeremiah said, who can know this, right? I, I don't think that we can actually know our hearts directly. That is, you can't look at your soul and go, oh, look at you. You're just, I know where you are. You, you can't actually look at your soul. You can't look at your heart directly. The only thing you can do to get a sense of the, the shape and how your heart really is, because it's a dynamic thing, it can change, it can change for Asaph, it can change for you, is to look indirectly at how do I feel? What am I thinking about? That, th- those, are, those are indirect ways of measuring where is my heart at? What are my behaviors, right? Um, those are ways of, of getting a sense of where is where's, where's my heart at? Have you ever, ever wonder why you know, you're struggling with your diet and you're like, man, I, just, I know I shouldn't have that third piece of pie. I know it. But you eat it anyway. Indirectly. What that says is, even though you know one thing, your heart, the center of being, where will and mind and affection find their source, wants well, pie, right? That's the heart. And, um, and one of the only ways you can know that, hey, I'm, I'm jaded, is looking at how do I act, how do I feel, what do I think about? And uh, if you find yourself... Angry and frustrated and bitter and judging everyone. Well, that's that's that suggests this is this the real state of my heart, right? The center of my being, um, and that's that's what happened with his heart. He just came to the realization at some point that wow, my heart is in a bad place because I'm wanting the wrong things. So listen, the point to be taken from looking at the man is to simply recognize that you have a fragile and a susceptible. Um, Vulnerable heart to change and go in the wrong direction. So, from the man, now let's look at the shift that happened. The shift is verse three, where he says, um, For, and now he's going to describe um, why or how he almost slipped, almost stumbled. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It says I was envious. That's the state of my heart when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Two parts to that that I think are worth noting. He acknowledges that the state of his heart had changed. He recognized that he was envious. That is, he 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 recognized that he had shifted the um, the occupation of his mind from vertical as a worshiper, worshiper of Yahweh to to horizontal. He began to live by comparison with other people, um, in particular the wicked and the arrogant, living in prosperity. And now he feels a sense of envy at what they have and what he doesn't have. That's, that, that, that's how he feels. He's, he's probably um, spitefully wanting what others have who he thinks doesn't deserve it. That's the state of the heart, envy, right? There's a difference, by the way, between... Envy and jealousy. Jealousy comes from the fear of losing what you do have, and envy is the desire to have what you don't have or what somebody else has. So he's wanting something that he doesn't have, that he sees those around him having. But notice in the verse that my heart was envious when, when I saw that is the, the shift, I think, is a shift in focus, a shift in perspective. It's like, as a worshiper of Yahweh, the primary dominant thoughts of his life would have been about what, who God is, what he's done, what he's done in his grace to lead them out of Egypt and so forth, to save them and make them his own special treasured possession. So now he's looking, and his focus has shifted. Now he's, shift, he's focusing on comparison. Um, who has what and who doesn't have. And he feels a sense of... Of envy, but that is a, that is, it's interesting how that, that works, and it really does work that way. Well, oftentimes we don't feel envious until we see something or experience something, right? Family camp last week, you saw some of the pictures. Um, I had a brother in this church loan me his truck. I'm not gonna confess to envy here, but he, he loaned me this Ford F 350 with a, you know, super duty turbo diesel. I loved my expedition. I still love my expedition. Man, if, I'm a truck guy to feel the power of a super duty turbo diesel. (laughs) Seriously. I'm just like, I texted him and said, I gotta get me one of these. Right? I didn't envy, but I'll tell you what, I wanted it. I didn't know what I didn't have until I drove it. Then like, wow, I could want that. You know, it's, it, you can be perfectly happy and content when you're, you know, you got the best car or you, you're the best looking or the smartest or whatever, the best of in your little pond. Well, boy, when, when someone moves in next door that has more money than you and doesn't struggle like you and seems like he has a perfect marriage and all the kids are growing up and they're doing great off in of college and have their careers and so forth, it's really easy then to feel <sighs> inadequate like you're not worthy, all kind of side effects of being envious of somebody else. Sometimes it's off the charts envy. Sometimes it's just a low-level backburner envy that you have. But that's, that's, that's where he's at. And it's interesting, you know, I had, um, Rufus read the Genesis 3, that the same temptation that Asaph experienced r- really was the primal um, temptation in the garden, right? I mean, come on, Adam and Eve had everything, <laughs> Right. Everything. I mean, they had the presence of God with them. They didn't have to. They didn't. They didn't, didn't even need a temple. They didn't need a mediator. They just. They just knew God. He was right there, and they had each other, and they're married, and didn't have to wear clothes. I mean, how cool is that? Surrounded by the beauty of a perfect creation and food abounding everywhere. It's like they had everything. And then the the, the, the you know the the. the The deceiver comes in and just simply whispers in her ear, saying, but you don't have that. And that is worth something. And for the first time, she wants what she doesn't have. And her gratitude and joy are stolen from her. And it's interesting in the Genesis passage, and when she saw, that the fruit was good, she took it. I'm telling you, uh, brothers and sisters, part of the, the let to call it the path to the dark side is to live with a horizontal occupation of mind, in particular in comparing yourself with other people and assessing the haves and the have-nots. Um, especially when you feel like the people who have are less than you. There are some talented people in this church, and I'm betting, be willing to bet that you work hard, and you know you're twice as talented than most, and yet while you struggle in your craft, or you struggle in your work, or you struggle in whatever it is you do and you're good at, that your day has not come other people it feels like everything they touch turns to gold They're, they can do no wrong and you feel angry by it a sense of envy maybe that leads to a sense of cynicism about life like this isn't fair you know or on a spiritual level it seems like everybody else gets answered prayer but mine doesn't and it can create a sense of spiritual envy um, and at the end, I think a sense of cynicism. Why is it that, and the, why is it that a that a mother who is addicted to crack, who has absolutely no heart or desire to care for kids, can have six infants and adopt them away, when a young Christian couple pray for years and they can't even have one? Man, that's a, that's, a, 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 that's a perspective on life. And uh, if, if you happen to be a person who is jaded and, and, and you're just being honest with yourself and the Lord, and that's what you have to be in here, honest with yourself and the Lord, it's like, yeah, that's me. I'm, I'm kind of angry about life. I'm, I'm bitter about how things have turned out. I don't feel like I got my, my due. Um, and I think the psalmist would say to you, listen, I've been there. I have been where you are. And you know what? Because I've been there, I can tell you your perception is off. The occupation and the focus of your mind can't be imperative. It can't be horizontal. It has to be vertical. So that's, that's the shift that takes place. Um, it's a shift in perspective. So here you have this great, mighty man of God who is brought low, he wanders, and happened to any of us. And he describes it as a shift. But it gets deeper than that. And this will get down to the core, and this is the third part of this. It's not just an issue with someone else being more prosperous. At the end of the day, at the core of spiritual cynicism uh, is a problem with God himself. And that comes out in two places in these three verses. Verse 1, you notice he says, truly, it's like he's preaching, truly God is. Is good to Israel. Now I believe in this psalm that is kind of a a flash forward. Like that's the conclusion that he comes to after his after his story concludes. Like he's he's moving the final conclusion up to the very front of the psalm, saying, At the end of the day, this is what I discovered after wandering away, is that God is good, right? That implies, that implies that his journey away. Included doubts that God was good, that he needed to rediscover and re realize that truly God is good, implying, like I said, that he doubted God's goodness. But not just his goodness, he doubted his justice too. And that is the end of verse three when he says, When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, now he realizes that life as he sees it, his perception is, from his vantage point and his scope of judgment, is unfair. It's, it doesn't, not just doesn't make sense, it just, it doesn't seem right. Why does the good guy, why does the sexual deviant get to live into his 90s and the good Christian dad die at 46 from bone cancer. It's, it's troubling, deeply troubling to the soul to see what we perceive as inequity, injustice, and how can this be true in God's universe if he's good? Those two are inseparable, justice and goodness. You see, that's, that's part of the deep struggle. It's at the end of the day, when you find yourself jaded or cynical about life or envying what other people have, At the end of the day, deep down, it means that you don't believe in your heart of hearts that God is being good to you. Either in the additions that he allows you to have or in the subtractions that he doesn't allow you to have. You know, there's another psalm that says that God withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. In other words, he gives us whatever is good for us. That means that if he doesn't give it to us, He's still being good to us. At the end of the day, it's, wow, God, are you just? And are you good? That is at the bedrock of spiritual cynicism on the part of a believer. It gets down to your relationship with God and what do you really believe about him? Is he good all the time? Is he good only if he prospers you? If he's, is he good only if there's health, wealth, and prosperity? Or is he good in the midst of your sickness? Is he good in the midst of your unemployment? Is he good in the midst of children who are rebelling? Is he good in the midst of a hard marriage? Is he good? That's the question. Right, that's where it comes right down to for the Christian. That's the root. That's the grassroots. Is ultimately cynicism comes from doubts and distrust in God Himself and what He said. That's the, that's 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 the, I, to me that's the heart of it. Now, if I just ended right here, you'd probably go, "Man, that was the worst sermon I ever heard." At least, hopefully, you you kind of see like the process. I mean, th- th- this should be instructive for us, right? Your heart's susceptible, mine is susceptible. Some of us are already jaded. And some of us are living in the perception of, where you just keep evaluating what you don't have and what others do have. And then deep down, the realization that, wow, this is, a, this is, this is about my relationship with God. It's not about my relationship with other people. And that, that itself should help us discover. Maybe the Lord will show you, man, that's, that's, that's me hit the nail on the head, Asaph. So what what is the antidote? And I'm I'm not going to jump ahead here, but but I I can't leave this story without a happy ending. At the the end of the day, you know, it's to get your eyes and your perception and the occupation of your mind and heart off of the horizontal either inequity, disproportion, or whatever it is, and your heart back on the the vertical. It's, It's to practice what David practiced himself. You know, one of the favorite Psalms of David, 103, when he says, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And he's talking to himself as if his soul is not blessing the Lord. It's like, what's wrong with you, heart? What's wrong with you, soul? You should be praising God all the time. So what does he do? He starts reminding himself of all the benefits, right? Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy and satisfies you with good, right? That's what he tells himself. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Uh, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he separate our iniquity or transgression from us. You know, your love extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And none of those things that David counted as benefits came to him apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's just, I'm telling you, Brothers and sisters, church, part of the way out of the dark hole of cynicism has come out of the light of of what God has done. You know, and to be re reminded once again, you spared me, you forgave me. I was separated, and I was on the outside, and you took me in and made me part of the inside. I once was lost in a sea of identity crisis, and now you have given to me the title of son. I have hope. I have future. I have eternal family. I have an inheritance that can't be taken away despite what happens in this life. And in so despair, rehearsing and remembering and allowing the truth to dwell in you richly, one finds the heart, once again, um, filled not with what the world has to offer, but with what God has done for you. That, that really, is the end of the day, is the way out. And to be able to pray, Lord, teach me your way. Unite my heart to fear your holy name. It's the vertical occupation of the mind or what Paul would say being transformed by the renewing of your mind based upon what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. But i leave you with this, this last little piece of good news. If you happen to be a cynic and want out, jaded, I love two words in here. It says, but as for me, my feet had almost, word number one, my steps had nearly almost fell. I nearly stumbled, but I didn't. Why not? Why didn't he stumble? Why didn't he trip or fall? The one word answer for that is the grace of God it is that God is not going to allow his people, ultimately and finally, to step off the edge into faithlessness. But he walks them right up to that line. And the rest of the story is how God gently and wonderfully and mercifully and and graciously led him back into the light. Right? That's the good news is that God does not abandon his people. And he will use this in his life. And by nature of the fact that he wrote it down for us, he is using his experience in our lives. All right. I hope to will be honest in, with the Lord in these weeks. Um, this is not for me; this is for all of us um, to allow this, the Spirit to speak through His truth to us personally. Open open doors, Father, to um, to those you've gathered here. Um, allow there to be um, uh, good and healthy and truthful self reflection. And, um, and I pray for um, those who find themselves in a place of doubt or a disposition of distrust of you. I, I, I just ask, be gracious, Father, and, 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 and lead them to a place of freedom. Lead us to a place of freedom and, and, a, and, a, and a renewed joy um, in who you are. I pray this in the name of our wonderful Savior and Shepherd, uh, who never leaves us nor forsakes us. Amen.